This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts on archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. Religion was a large part of most rebels' lives, and many Bureau of Military History statements begin at Mass on Easter Sunday and hearing about the countermanding order afterwards. In the context of the penal laws, a large part of the concept of independence was about the freedom to be Catholic. The establishment Catholic Church were generally opposed to the Easter Rising and to the trade union movement during the 1913 lockout. However, outside the diocesan church, individual orders had the independence to form their own opinions. One such order was the Capuchin Friars of Church Street. The head of the order in Ireland, Father Aloysius Travers and his fellow friars, were sucked into the fighting immediately at the outbreak of the Easter Rising. Father Matthew Hall, connected to the Capuchin Friary on Church Street, was the headquarters for the 1st Battalion of the Irish Volunteers and served as a hospital during the fighting. I visited the Friary to speak to Father Brian Shortall, the successor of Father Aloysius as the guardian of the Church Street Friary. Here he reads from a statement made by Aloysius about his experiences in 1916. As a priest, I am the minister that is the servant of all classes, or perhaps rather I should say, I know no class. For every soul is equally precious. But my ministry has been chiefly cast amongst the working class of Dublin, and I am proud to think that I may call them my friends. I have always felt at home with them. Many people assumed that there were pre-existing ties between the volunteers and the Capuchins, due to the close links that were forged over the week, and that perhaps they were in on the secret. Father Aloysius points out that these links were purely down to circumstance, and the location of the Capuchin Friary at the centre of the fiercest fighting of the week. On Easter Monday, he had no idea of the events that were about to unfold. Shortly after 12 o'clock, as we were at luncheon, we were startled by rifle fire. And very soon word was brought to the friary that a little boy had been shot near the Father Matthew Hall. And a wounded man was also brought to the friary. And a number of terrified children, crying, came to us for shelter. By 1.30pm, barricades had been erected in Church Street and were manned by volunteers. The first half of the week passed in relative peace, as volunteers manned barricades and waited for the fight to come to them. As the week wore on, the fighting increased as waves of British troops arrived by boat. The friars worked ceaselessly in the field hospital, providing religious services to the wounded. On Thursday, very extensive fires could be seen as far as we could locate them. They were principally in O'Connell Street and the GPO, and Cleary seemed to be involved. The rifle and machine gun volleys were also continuous. The volunteers had taken prisoners, soldiers from Linenhall Barracks and a DMP man and had them working at filling sandbags in the Father Matthew Hall. On Friday the machine gun fire was continuous and there were very many explosions from bombs or hand grenades, cannon fire from the direction of the bay. The firing was very intense all through Friday night and without cessation until 3 to 4 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. Many explosions and many buildings could be seen blazing. The number of wounded was increasing and many cases were brought to the Father Matthew Hall. By 4pm the military were as far as the junction of King Street and Church Street and were firing on the Church Street barricades, the Cumann girls at the Father Matthew Hall, all very excited and naturally feared for the poor wounded under their care. A message had been sent under a white flag to acquaint the military that the hall was being used as a hospital, but it had no effect. The reply was oral. 
The military will grant none of the amenities of war, but would treat them as outlaws and rebels. The position was desperate, and Father Augustine and myself decided that there was no option but to go ourselves and seek an interview with the officer in command. Aloysius and Augustine left the safety of the hall and approached the British barricades. The colonel then arrived and listened to our statement. He made no answer, but unceremoniously turned and walked off. A long time elapsed. To us it seemed an hour. So anxious were we for the safety of the poor patients in the Father Matthew Hall that we saw Colonel Taylor at the corner of Church Street and we approached him. He very coolly informed us that a truce had been arranged. While the colonel, Michael Foley, came to complain that the soldiers had prevented him from going for a doctor, just as he was speaking, some shots rang out from a house between North King Street and North Brunswick Street, and turning to Foley, Colonel Taylor brutally shouted at him to stop the firing or he would shoot him, and ordering him to the other side of the street, he kept him covered by his revolver. Poor Foley, exhausted and hoarse, tried to tell the volunteers that there was a truce and asked them to cease firing. Father Augustine stepped forward and appealed to them too and informed them that Colonel Taylor had told us that the following advice to surrender from Pierce, a truce had been made. The volunteers believed that it was only a ruse of the military and would not believe it. However, they agreed to keep the truce for the night on our undertaking to see Pierce in the morning at the earliest moment to satisfy ourselves and them of the genuineness of Pierce's message. The next day, they continued in their mission. Father Augustine and myself celebrated Mass about seven o'clock and after a cup of coffee and a very light meal of bread, we were walked to the castle to seek a permit to see Pierce. We had an interview with Brigadier General Lowe, who was in command of the British military forces. He received us very courteously and promptly granted us the permit to see Pierce at Arbor Hill. The General suggested that we should see Connolly also as he was responsible for the citizen army and he took us to the room in the castle where Connolly was a patient. In our presence, he asked Connolly if his signature to the letter advising surrender was genuine. Connolly's reply was yes, to prevent needless slaughter. He added that he spoke only for his own men. General Lowe then placed his car at our disposal. We accompanied McDonough and other volunteer to St. Patrick's Park at the hour appointed and Generals Lowe's and McDonough met and conversed for some time on the footpath and then withdrew to General Lowe's car in which they continued to parley. The parley over, McDonough returned to us and told us that he had decided to advise surrender and that there was a truce until 3pm. Meantime, he was to consult the men at Jacobs, South Dublin Union and Marabone Lane and give a final decision to General Lowe at 3pm. We then thought to return to Church Street, but General Lowe begged us to see the whole thing through, as any hitch might be fatal, and he was anxious to prevent further bloodshed. From there, they went to the South Dublin Union, where St James's Hospital now stands. At the Union, we met Eamon Kant. The officers had a consultation and decided to surrender. Returning on foot to barricade at Basin Lane, McDonough, a volunteer, Father Augustine and myself, we very nearly got a hot reception. One of the British soldiers fired at us. The four of us escaped. I don't say because the soldier was a poor aim, but because we were told he had a drop of drink. One of the officers hastened to apologise and told us that the soldier was put under arrest. 
At 3pm we were again at St. Patrick's Park. Thomas MacDonough taking off his belt, handed it with his revolver to General Lowe. Hearing a commotion nearby, they realised that looters were attempting to break into the other side of the Jacobs building. Dublin civilians were the worst affected party during the week of fighting. Incurring losses from both sides, they were cut off from nearly all food supplies and were starving by the end of the week. The looters were busy and we found them getting out into the street with the stolen goods. I stood at the window and addressed them. If I ever managed to put fire into my words, it was then. Side by side with the manly and straightforward conduct of those who had borne the brunt of the trying week, I thought their conduct wretched and despicable and I did not mince my words. The result was that the crowd promised to leave and go to their homes and the looters, at least a goodly number of them, threw back the looted articles. Father Aloysius survived the week, but his responsibilities didn't end there. Due to the close connection forged with the leaders of the Rising during Easter week, Aloysius was sent for to minister to two of the leaders, McDonough and Pierce, as they were to be executed the following morning. I spent some hours between the two cells and the preparation these two men made to meet death was simply inspiring and edifying. When I met Pierce, I said, I am sure you will be glad to know that I gave Holy Communion to James Connolly this morning. I can't forget the fervour with which, looking up to heaven, he said, thank God. It is the one thing I was anxious about. I heard the confessions of Pierce and McDonough and gave them both Holy Communion. They received the most blessed sacrament with intense devotion and spent the time at their disposal in prayer. They were happy, no trace of fear or anxiety. Pierce and McDonough were the first two of 14 leaders to be executed in the coming days. Most of these would be ministered to by Capuchin priests. In the afternoon of Thursday, I called to see Connolly at the castle. He seemed very feverish and told me that he had not slept the previous night. I suggested that I should call again in the morning to hear his confession and gave him Holy Communion again. Now the time appointed, Connolly was to be taken to Kilmainham. I had a few words. I said that the men who would execute him were soldiers, probably they knew nothing about him, and like soldiers would simply obey orders and fire. And I wanted him to feel no anger against them, but to say as our Lord said on Calvary, Father, forgive them and to say a prayer for them. I do, Father, he answered. I respect every man who does his duty. James Connolly was then brought down to the car and laid on a stretcher in it. I sat in the ambulance car with him. I said a last word to him before they took him from the car in Kilmainham Yard. He was put sitting on a chair and the order was given. They fired and Father Eugene McCarthy went over and anointed Connolly. I stood just behind the firing line. It was a scene I should not ask to witness again. I had got to know Connolly, to wonder at the strength of his character and marvellous power of concentration, and I had got to regret that I had not known him long, and now I had to say goodbye. All I could do was to return with a heavy heart and to offer the holy sacrifice for his soul. Now I thank God that I knew him. Aloysius was at home among the working class of Dublin. The friary on Church Street was surrounded by some of the worst tenements in Dublin, and thus in Europe. Seeing the working class residents of Church Street injured and under attack during Easter week would have left Aloysius and his fellow friars with no choice as to what action to take. It was their responsibility to provide care for those in need of it, without exception. Aloysius continued to be a strong voice in support of the poor and oppressed in Ireland. He died in 1957, having been a Capuchin for 69 of his 89 years. 
For more on the Capuchins of Church Street, be sure to listen to our special on the Capuchin Friary as it is today, later this week. Many thanks to Father Brian Shortall for reading the statement of Father Aloysius. I'm On Cody. Thanks for listening.